amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Previously on Truth and Justice. Authorities are asking the public to help identify several men who they say tied up and terrorized a family for about two hours during an armed robbery at a home in Kingwood earlier this year. Police said the men ambushed a man about 1 a.m. on February 26 and forced him inside his home in the 1700 block of Sandy Trail Court. The men tied up the man and his family, including two small grandchildren, and ransacked the house for about two hours. The thieves demanded the man give them money from his safe, but the man told them that he did not have a safe. The men left the home after stealing several items, including an iPad, an iPhone, and a gun. took a deep dive into the crime scene investigation of the Melgar's home located at 9538 Kelsey Meadows Court. Our focus in that episode was to look at the portions of the house outside of the master suite where Jim and Sandy were found. After analyzing Maurice Carpenter's report, along with all the crime scene photos, it's my position that one of two things occurred in the house on the night of the murder. Either multiple offenders entered the house to burglarize it, or Sandy Melgar staged the scene to give it that appearance. But let's consider for a moment that this was, in fact, a home invasion burglary. If that's the case, what is the scene telling us so far? I believe that the point of entry would be through the backyard. In my opinion, there are definite indications that someone at least attempted to force the back door open. Although, with that being said, the fact that the door was deadbolted shut during the investigation is puzzling. Continuing with the theme of a home invasion, the deadbolt could mean a couple of things. One possibility is that the door wasn't locked and the unsubs were already inside the house when Jim went to check on the dogs. Let's remember back to Sandy's police interview. She couldn't confirm that the back door was actually locked. She never used it that day, but Jim had been in and out. The offenders could have entered through the door, causing the dogs to bark, and could have been in the front of the house or in the southeast bedroom when Jim emerged from the master suite to check on the dogs. Jim locks the door behind him and turns around to see an unsub confronting him with some kind of weapon. Another possibility would be that when Jim opened the door, he was rushed by the offenders. 
one of whom locked the door behind them after they entered in an attempt to deter occupants from fleeing. In any case, based on this hypothetical scenario, the intruders are inside and the door is now locked. Working off of the theory that there were multiple offenders, perhaps Jim was told that if he stays quiet and doesn't resist, no one would get hurt. A second offender goes into the master suite and finds Sandy in the closet. The unsub hits Sandy over the head, triggering a seizure. Much like the scene from the Houston Chronicle report that we reported on last week, the intruder's intention here could have been simply to tie up the Melgars while they burglarized the house, perhaps even instructing Jim to open the safe in the closet. At some point, something breaks bad with Jim, and he begins to fight back. There is evidence on the scene to indicate that the robbery was interrupted. Let's assume that one of the unsubs began in the southeast corner and was working systematically to search for small, valuable items. They take a few small items from that bedroom, then move on to the guest bedroom, but for some reason, they never make it into the next room. There's no indication that anyone entered the study-slash-office. Why not look in that room? It was full of computers and other electronics. Someone, maybe a different someone, picked up a few small, valuable items from the living room, including the black Xbox. The same backpack that contained the Xbox also contained jewelry from the master bath. That backpack is left in the garage, another indicator that something didn't go according to plan. Working through this hypothesis, and keep in mind, I'm really just spitballing at this point, but let's assume that we have three or four offenders. No one wants to kill anyone, but someone ends up killing Jim. Chaos breaks out. They all decide to grab a few items and flee the scene. They contact their getaway driver and exit out the garage door. The backpack had already been stashed in the garage, ready for pickup at the end of the job. But at this point, the whole crew is freaking out. Someone hits the garage door opener and the wrong door opens. The backpack was set down on the left side, but the right side door opens. Without even thinking about it, the unsubs hightail it out of there, leaving Jim dead in the closet, Sandy unconscious in another, the garage door open, and the backpack on the floor. This is one possible scenario based solely on what we know so far. Now, the flip side of this hypothesis would be Sandy staging the entire house to create the vision of that scene. Although I have to say, there are a lot of subtleties to this crime scene. I've never seen a staging with quite so much thought put into it. For example, take the Xbox, but leave it in the garage for investigators to find, while at the same time removing some items completely. The scene isn't set to look like a robbery. It looks like a robbery gone bad. In order to find the answers that we're seeking, we need to finish analyzing the rest of the house. We need the full picture. Let's begin with the master bathroom, where Sandy was found. We're going to work a little bit out of order from Carpenter's report. He moved from the garage into the master bedroom, but we're going to cover the bathroom first. From the report. Master bathroom. 
The master bathroom was located to the north of the master bedroom and at the northeast corner of the house. The lights in the bathroom were on. The northwest corner of the room was a large whirlpool bathtub. There were large, opaque, fixed windows on the north and west walls behind the bathtub. The bathtub was filled with what appeared to be water. Lying at the bottom of the bathtub was a large kitchen knife, a white blouse, a green towel, and a white towel. The knife had a black handle and a single-edged, pointed-tip blade that was stamped Calvin 6-inch chef knife. The knife, which was one of the same style as the knife found in the kitchen drawer, had an overall length of 11.5 inches. The blade was 6 inches in length and 1 and 5 8 inch wide at the hilt. There was a reddish-brown colored substance on the blade and the handle in the area of the blade's hilt. Swabs were taken from the blade and handle of the knife. There were numerous items on the rim of the bathtub and both windowsills, including household decorations, bath products, towels, a 1.75-liter bottle of Tito's brand vodka, a 2-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a plastic bowl containing uneaten strawberries, and a bowl of whipped cream. There was one uneaten strawberry in the whipped cream. Lying on the floor next to the bathtub were bath towels, a light-colored blue robe, a white t-shirt, a pair of white-colored briefs, and a piece of multicolored scarf that was tied in a knot. There's more to this section of the report, but let's break this paragraph down first. Everything he describes is accurate. The only discrepancy is Carpenter's comparison of the knife to the knife found in the kitchen. While the two knives are the same brand, Calfon, they are not similar in style. The one in the tub is what I would describe as a butcher knife. Large, long, and coming to a point at the end. The technical name for this type of knife is a chef's knife. The kind of knife of the same brand found in the kitchen, however, was a 5-inch Santoku knife. Both are large knives, but the Santoku doesn't have a point. The blade carries the same height most of the way to the tip, then curves down. Only the bottom of the blade is sharp. You couldn't stab anyone with this knife. I'll also point out that these two knives weren't part of a complete set. They very well may have been at some time, but the Melgars had a mix-match drawer full of knives of all different brands. The Santoko was the only other Calvin knife in the house. But let's talk about the other items found in the water. A white blouse, a green towel, and a white towel. Colleen Barnett's theory about these items was that Sandy, and I'm paraphrasing, must have just forgotten about them. But in my opinion, that's a stretch. Let's consider for a minute that Sandy killed Jim. It's the middle of the night, and she has nothing but time. She could easily wash and disinfect the knife, but instead puts it in the tub, guaranteeing that police will find it. And the blouse and towels? Why not wash them and put them away? At least then there's a possibility that the police will miss them amongst all of the other clothes and towels. And I'll even go a step further. There are absolutely items missing from the house, as we'll discuss shortly. If Sandy did stage the scene and left to get rid of items from the house... Why would she leave the murder weapon and her bloody clothes behind for the police to find? That, in my opinion, doesn't make sense. This is how I see it. All theories aside, just looking at what's in front of us. Why was the knife thrown into the water? Well, the killer didn't want to have it in their possession, and likely they believed the water would wash away any forensic evidence. If that's true, behaviorally speaking, we know that our unsub sees the tub as a safe disposal area. Now, according to Colleen Barnett, 
her blood spatter expert said that the killer would have had blood all over them. Our unsub couldn't just walk out of the garage door with a bloody shirt and blood all over their arms and face. So, they take off their shirt and dispose of it in the same place they dispose of the knife. And that, right off the bat, is an indicator that the unsub is not concerned about being connected to the knife. It's not theirs, and short of any fingerprints or DNA, there's no way to tie it back to them. Now, taking off the blouse solves one problem, but the unsub's hands, arms, and face are still covered in blood. He or she grabs a couple of towels, cleans up, and disposes of them in the tub with the rest of the blood-covered items. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. A close look at the photos reveals that we're looking at a female shirt. If you go to our website and look, you'll see that there is lace on the ends of the sleeves. And from what I'm told, it was a size medium woman's shirt. Now, I haven't been able to verify this just yet, but assuming that it's true, we could be looking at a female killer. Moving on to the items Carpenter listed on the floor... He describes bath towels, a light blue colored robe, a white t-shirt, white briefs, and a piece of multicolored scarf that was tied in a knot. All of this is accurate. The multicolored scarf is what Herman and Maria identified as the bindings from Sandy's ankles. Now back to the report. Along the west wall, south of the bathtub, was a vanity with a single sink. Lying on top of the vanity were numerous personal grooming products, and there was a black brazier in the sink. At the north end of the vanity was a jewelry case which was open and several open jewelry boxes. The vanity's drawer was slightly open. On the floor in front of the west vanity was a space heater in a brown CVS paper bag. Looking at the crime scene photos, Carpenter wasn't quite as descriptive as he probably should have been. He states, quote, at the north end of the vanity was a jewelry case which was open and several open jewelry boxes, end quote. He's not wrong, but what he fails to mention is the fact that at least three of the jewelry boxes are not just open, they're empty. And that's just what we can see. He never bothered to take a photo into the jewelry case itself to see if it looks like anything else is missing. Now back to the report. Along the north wall, east of the bathtub, was a vanity with a single sink. Lying on top of the vanity were personal grooming products, a pair of orange-colored handled scissors, a 1.25-liter bottle of Sprite, the lid to the container of whipped cream, and an empty plastic Dole strawberry container. 
This is all accurate. It would appear that the strawberries were transferred from their packaging into the bowl in the bathroom rather than in the kitchen. Just in front of the north vanity wall was a chair that was covered with a fabric covering. The back of the chair was against the north vanity. There was a small reddish colored stain on the corner of the seat area of the cover. Lying on the floor near the north vanity and just behind the chair was a piece of multicolored scarf and one piece of purple colored cord. Again, Carpenter's pretty accurate here. The purple cord piece is part of the binding that Herman and Maria cut off of Sandy's arms. But what Carpenter doesn't mention here is the pillow sham that was right next to the chair. Also, no mention of the sham being under the chair. In the photos, it's evident that the sham was next to the chair, not under it. A point that seems to have been ignored by the CSIs later in the evening. Now back to the report. At the southeast corner of the bathroom was a shower. Inside the shower were bathing products, a spray bottle of cleanser, and a squeegee. The shower enclosure and floor were dry. To the north of the shower was a door to the walk-in closet, and at the northeast corner of the bathroom was a door to a small toilet room. Inside the trash can in the toilet room was a plastic glove. The only thing that I would add here is the fact that the bathing products mentioned are on the floor of the shower. They're not positioned up on a shelf. Back to the report. Here, Carpenter discusses the pillow shams. There were three pillow shams on the bathroom floor that appeared to have been used as bath floor mats. One was located just outside the shower door, one was located just outside of the closet, and one was located in front of the toilet. All three of the shams were bunched up. The pillow sham near the closet door was torn on one of its sides. There were two pieces of purple-colored cord lying on top of the pillow sham. There was one piece of purple-colored cord and one piece of multicolored scarf near the closet door. There are a couple of points of interest here. The first and most important of which is Carpenter's description of the location of THE pillow sham. Quote, one was located just outside the closet door, end quote. Carpenter is making a point to describe the pillow sham and makes zero mention of it being under the chair. And like I said earlier, that's because it wasn't under the chair. Secondly, in Colleen Barnett's interview, she stated that there was no explanation as to why the sham was in the bathroom. That's interesting because not only were there two more shams in the bathroom, all clearly being used as rugs, but also Carpenter even wrote in his report that they were used as rugs. Not much mystery there. Next, Carpenter describes the inside of the closet where Sandy was found. From the report... The closet door was equipped with a standard entry knob with no lock. The interior of the closet measured 7 feet 11 inches north to south and 6 feet 8 inches east to west at its widest point. Inside the closet were hanging clothes and clothing and other personal items on shelves and on the floor. To the north of the closet was a chest of drawers. On top of the chest were, among other items, a shoebox, several belts, and two wooden cases. The top two drawers of the chest were open. There were numerous items piled on the floor in front of the chest, including shoes, bags, and boxes. 
There was an alarm system control box mounted to the wall above the closet door. The box was closed and there was no observable signs of tampering. The closet is a very strange scene. You'll have to go to our website and look at the photos to get a clearer picture, but this is what catches my attention. This closet is jam-packed. Lots of shoes and clothing. The top drawer of the dresser is just partially opened, and it appears to have cosmetic-type items inside. The second drawer, however, is fully opened, and it looks like an underwear drawer. And Carpenter left out the bottle of lotion that's on the floor. But more importantly, there's a big issue with the shelves. Above the hanging clothes, there are two shelves that wrap around the two long walls of the closet. The shelves are full of all sorts of things. The top shelf specifically contains lots of Victoria's Secret boxes and bags, some folded clothes and purses. The entire shelf is full with items stacked on top of each other, all except for the northeast corner. In that area, there is about a two-foot length of shelf that's completely empty. Right under this area is where Carpenter mentions the, quote, numerous items piled on the floor in front of the chest, including shoes, bags, and boxes, end quote. One of the bags is a Victoria's Secret bag, and on the shelf directly above and adjacent to the empty space are several Victoria's Secret's bags and boxes. Maybe a minor detail, but very revealing. This shelf is six and a half to seven feet off the ground. These items didn't just fall over. Someone obviously pulled them off the shelf and onto the floor. It's a pretty interesting detail if someone was simply staging this crime scene. That wraps up Carpenter's analysis of the master bathroom and bathroom closet. And this is what I picked up from the photos in his report. Someone clearly not only picked through Sandy's jewelry, but there are definitely items missing, evident by the empty boxes. The pillow sham was one of a set of three, and it was most definitely not positioned under the chair. If Sandy and Jim didn't have a romantic evening in the jacuzzi tub, then Sandy did an amazing job of staging that scene, right down to small amounts of whipped cream visible inside the bowl of strawberries, making it look like someone got some whipped cream on their fingers before going back in for more. The empty strawberry container on the counter, the different mixers, Coke and Sprite, and something that I didn't mention before, there's only one drink glass on the tub. It's on the left side, where Sandy said that she was sitting, and the liquid inside is clear, meaning that that glass contains Sprite as a mixer, not Coke. There's also sliced lime wedges in the drink, accounting for the knife and cutting board in the kitchen that I mentioned last week. Then to further support her story, the other drink glass was found, but not in the bathroom. The second glass, with brown liquid inside, was found in the bedroom, on the treadmill. This drink was obviously mixed with Coke and also contained sliced limes. It's pretty damn clever if the goal was to make it look like Jim got out of the tub with his drink and walked through the bedroom to check on the dogs. We also have the items pulled off the top shelf of the closet. In my opinion, another indicator that someone was searching for valuables. And lastly, the woman's blouse and the two towels inside the tub. Not a good idea for Sandy if she was the killer. However, if this was part of staging the scene, she must be pretty damn good at criminal behavior analysis. Because she most definitely made it look like a female attacker was covered in blood, 
and put her bloody shirt and the towels that she used to clean off with in the water in order to dilute the evidence. Next up, we're going to move into the master bedroom, where Jim's body was found, right after the break. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Next, we're going to move into the last room of the Melgar's house, the master bedroom. Let's jump right into Carpenter's report. Master Bedroom The master bedroom was located at the northeast corner of the house and was furnished with typical bedroom furnishings including a king-size bed, a dresser, and nightstands. The bedroom entry door was located near the west end of the south wall and opened inward into the room. There was an alarm system control panel mounted on the wall to the east side of the entry door. To the east of the entry door was a walk-in closet. The closet door, which opened outward from the closet, was open. This is the closet in which the decedent was located and will be described later in the supplement. At the southwest corner of the bedroom was a nightstand. The nightstand's drawers were partially opened and on top of the nightstand were a drinking glass and a picture frame. Lying on the floor near the nightstand was a picture frame, several prescription pill bottles, and other miscellaneous items. Along the west wall were two window units inset with a window seat. On top of the window seat were books, household decorations, a blanket, and a makeshift antenna. In front of the window seat was an electronic treadmill. Draped across the treadmill's handle was a white robe, and lying on the treadmill base was a laundry basket and a glass. Terrible. This is a terrible job of describing this part of the scene. Let me give you my description based on the photos, beginning with the nightstand in the southwest corner of the room. All the drawers in the nightstand are open. The top drawer is partially opened and there is a plastic grocery bag hanging out of it. We can also see a stack of workout DVDs in this drawer. The second drawer is fully open. Left inside is a pair of safety goggles, a stethoscope, an envelope that looks like it contains x-rays, a blood pressure kit, and an old camera. Either 35mm or possibly an early 2000s model digital. The bottom drawer is also open but it's covered by the second drawer. We don't have any pictures of its contents. On the floor, in front of the nightstand, partially covered by the drawers, is a clutch-type pouch. Next to the pouch, on the floor, as described, are three prescription bottles. Also on the floor, in front of the nightstand, is a pouch that looks like it may be designed for a pair of sunglasses, a blue envelope, and a Windsor Pilates power-sculpting abs DVD case. 
Carpenter failed to mention the DVD, as well as the DVDs that were in the top drawer. But wait, there's more. The, quote, makeshift antenna that Carpenter mentioned was, in fact, on the window seat next to the nightstand. But what my boy Maurice fails to mention was the fact that the Melgars had no cable service, no satellite, nothing, and there are antennas on every TV. And this particular antenna has a coax cable coming off of it and extending towards the nightstand with nothing on the end of it. And that's not all. He never takes a picture of what's behind the nightstand, but in one of the pictures, if you look really close, you can see the end of an S-video cable poking out from behind. For those of you that don't remember the short life of the S-video connections, they were an early high-definition cable that came out about the same time as DVD players. Conclusion, and this is no surprise since Jim kept receipts and manuals for just about everything he ever owned, and Liz turned these receipts over to Detective Carzal, there was a 32-inch TV on that nightstand along with a DVD player. Both are missing, and neither are mentioned in the CSI report. Oh, and one last thing. The picture frame mentioned in the report is a 5x7 picture frame, and it's not just sitting on the floor. It's flipped over upside down next to the nightstand. And of course, I'll give you a little better description of the glass on the treadmill. It's the exact same Collins-type glass that was on the tub, the only difference being that in this one, the liquid is brown in color, as I mentioned before, and there are three lime wedges inside. That is a lot to miss in a very small area. The cord on the TV antenna, the DVDs on the floor and in the drawers, and the cord behind the nightstand are big misses. Now let's move on to the rest of the room and see what else we can find. From the report, at the west end of the north wall was a set of double doors leading to the master bathroom. The doors which opened inward into the bedroom were open. Lying on the floor in front of the doors was a pair of blue underwear. To the east of the bathroom doors, against the north wall, was a dresser. Most of the dresser drawers were partially open. On top of the dresser were, among other items, perfume bottles, decorations, medication bottles, a wooden jewelry box, and various types of containers. The lid to the jewelry box was lying on the bed. There were several socks on the floor in front of the dresser. Other than Carpenter mentioning the jewelry box on the bed, nothing seems to be too terribly out of place in this paragraph. But this is what I see. The top left drawer is completely opened. This drawer does not contain clothes. There's a clutch left inside, a case for glasses, some sort of electronics, and some paperwork or books. The drawer underneath it is a sock drawer. It's filled with nothing but socks. All the socks in the middle to the right are still in the drawer, but the left side of the drawer is empty, right above the six socks that are on the floor. The top middle drawer is also open and also doesn't contain any clothes. Left inside are some cosmetic bottles and several jewelry boxes. The front middle section of this drawer is completely void of anything. Something was clearly removed from this space. Then on top of the dresser are three medication bottles. Two are standing upright and one is tipped over on its side. There is also a book of matches on the corner of the dresser closest to the bathroom. And lastly, Carpenter mentions a pair of blue underwear on the floor near the doors of the bathroom. 
He doesn't mention that these are very obviously women's underwear, and they are also very obviously soiled. Moving on. The headboard of the bed was centrally located along the east wall, and the bed extended outward to the west with the footboard at the center of the room. There were nightstands on each side of the bed and single window units behind each nightstand. There were numerous items on top of the bed, including several pieces of jewelry, jewelry boxes, a Galaxy S cell phone, a black purse, a wallet, a makeup pouch, a debit card in the name of Jaime Melgar, two Los Cucos restaurant receipts dated 12-22-2012 at 8.59 p.m., miscellaneous cards and papers, and a Texas driver's license in the name of Sandra Melgar, which was inside the wallet. There was a black jacket draped over the northwest bedpost and two pairs of jeans and a sweater lying across the footboard. The southeast corner of the bed was a black zippered pouch that was lying under a pillow. The pouch, which was open, contained several sexual novelty items. What I see on the bed are two pairs of cheap earrings and a large cheap bracelet. There are two cardboard jewelry boxes open and empty and a ring box that is also open and empty. In the same area is a hard case for glasses, open and empty, the lid from the jewelry box on the dresser, and two clutch-type purses. Near the foot of the bed is a black leather purse that is completely empty. Its contents are dumped out next to it. The contents include a phone, an open wallet, a clutch, some random papers, a check made out to medical office services for $300, a pair of toenail clippers, two half-eaten rolls of mints, a makeup compact, a penny, and a prescription bottle with the printing on the label worn off. On the south side of the foot of the bed, we find a men's wallet, open and empty, a library card, some kind of rewards card, a Lowe's merchandise credit card, an HEB prescription rewards card, Jim's business card, a dry cleaning ticket, and several receipts, including the Los Cucos receipt from the night before. Then we have the sex toys. Now this is a strange situation. The bag of toys is under the pillow on the south side of the bed, but it's sticking out in plain view. In fact, the whole setup of the bed is odd. On the southeast corner, that would be the head end of the bed on the south side, the blanket and sheets are pulled back from the corner, like you would do before you crawl into bed, or when you get out of bed. There are three pillows stacked on the other side of the bed, and only one on this side, the one covering the sex toys. There's also a pretty thick, maybe four inches, mattress pad on the bed, and the sheets in the same corner as the toys are pulled off the mattress and are only staying in place because they're still wrapped around the mattress pad almost as if someone was looking under the mattress or under the mattress pad. To be honest, I don't quite have that piece of the puzzle put together yet. But let's get back into Carpenter's report. On top of the north nightstand was a lamp that was turned on, a wooden box containing various products, a drink bottle, a silver case, and a single white pill stamped aspirin lying on top of a coaster. On top of the south nightstand was a lamp that was off, a hardwire telephone, cordless telephone, miscellaneous papers, eyeglasses, books, sets of keys, and a candle which was lit. The south nightstand had drawers that were slightly open. There was a pillow standing on end on the floor between the nightstand and the open closet door. 
There was a blue sweatshirt and a black house shoe on the floor between the nightstand and the bed. The nightstand on the north side of the bed appears to be Sandy's side of the bed. Point of reference, this is not the side the sex toys were on. This stand appears to be untouched, although there could have been items on the nightstand that have been removed. The lamp is on, there's a wooden box that's been opened on top of it, but inside of that box is just lotions and a vitamin bottle labeled Evening Primrose. There's a plastic sports-type water bottle, a small metal box, and a coaster with an aspirin on top, just like Carpenter described. There are no drawers to this nightstand. There are two tablecloths draped over the top of it. Now, the nightstand near the sex toys, on the south side of the bed, is a mess. But it looks like Jim just kept it that way. First thing to point out is that the open closet door was blocking Jim's nightstand. On top was a lamp that was off and a candle that is completely liquefied but is still burning. The candle is on top of an air conditioner repair manual next to a pair of reading glasses. The manual is on top of a textbook and next to a blue pen, which is also on top of the textbook. Also on the nightstand is a glasses cleaning cloth and a lens cleaning spray, two sets of keys, another pair of glasses, a digital watch, another pen, a used tissue, business cards, a stack of paperwork including some receipts from Home Depot, and a leather cell phone belt pouch. There's a hardwired phone and a cordless phone, neither of which is missing its cords, and a blue plastic basket containing various unknown items and topped off with a Ziploc baggie full of receipts. The nightstand drawers have all been opened, but the contents are unknown. All that's left of this crime scene is the closet and Jim's body. And that breakdown is an episode all its own. I'm going to end today right here. But before I do, I want to read you another excerpt from Carpenter's report. It may give us a little insight into where his mind was on the night that he investigated this crime scene. This part was written before any further investigation was done. From the report. Under the direction of Sergeant McConnell, a demonstration was conducted of how a person could close themselves inside the master bathroom closet and at the same time cause the bathroom chair to become wedged under the closet doorknob. A pillow sham, floor mat in parentheses, was positioned under the closet door and the bathroom chair was placed on top of the sham with its back to the door. The chair was tilted back and the top of the chair back was placed under the doorknob. While standing inside the closet, the door and shand were pulled simultaneously, causing the door to be closed with the back of the chair wedged under the exterior doorknob. The demonstration was conducted using the same bathroom chair and similar pillow sham. The demonstration was videotaped using an 8mm video cassette recorder. Herman and Maria were never followed up with. Potential suspects were never interviewed, and I brought to light several areas of the crime scene that are clear indicators of a burglary in the last two weeks. All left out of this report. Carpenter even missed the backpack in the garage that turned out not only to contain an Xbox, but also several pieces of jewelry. On the very night that Carpenter was supposed to be gathering evidence at the scene, before any forensic evidence had been evaluated, he was already working to try to prove his theory that this was a staged crime scene. The Harris County Sheriff's Office was so locked into the tunnel vision of their theory of the case that they tried to file charges against Sandy Melgar before Maurice Carpenter even left the scene.
Instant Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Michael Bussing is your executive producer, and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. And Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com also created our Season 6 logo. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 a month. And we also have reward levels on the Patreon page that include access to the behind-the-scenes videos of the taping of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can follow along on Twitter at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.